For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Luke 22, and we're not going to be covering 62 verses because remember last week we uh, read through a significant section, a chunk of that, when we studied the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Instead, we're going to focus in on some of the, uh, issue, the, the circumstances or, or things that were surrounding the cross. Um, we know that uh, Judas, the betrayer, um, betrayed Jesus within the last few hours of his life, and that there were others who fled when Jesus was arrested. So why don't we pick back up in 22, verse 1 through 6, and um, kind of uh, look back at uh, what was happening with Judas. We're told in verse 1, the festival of unleavened bread, which is also called the Passover, was approaching. And the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Remember, things intensify as Jesus' life comes to a close. The chief priests, who are the religious leaders of Jesus' day, are trying to find different ways to trap Jesus. Then we're told in verse 3, Satan actually entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples. And he went to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted, and they promised to give him money. Now, Judas was with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, so he's been traveling with Jesus now for more than three years. And up to this point, he probably thought that Jesus would come finally as the reigning king, that he would establish his rule and crush his enemies, the Romans. And yet, as Jesus makes some of these strange statements where he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priest and will die, he started to get a little bit nervous that maybe what he signed up for was actually different than what he expected. And so, when it became clear that Jesus wasn't going to come and dominate the world, and that Judas wouldn't be ruling with him in his court, Judas decides, you know what? It's time for me to cash out. I mean, I've, I've wasted three and a half years of my life following this guy, thinking that I was going to be one of the rulers of Israel because of my loyalty to him. But now that it's clear that he's losing his following and probably is going to get crucified for the stuff that he's saying, I might as well go and sell him out. And so he goes to the Jewish leaders who are taking aim at Jesus, and he decides to plot against Jesus. And in exchange, he was going to take in 30 pieces of silver. Uh, so he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so that they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. So he's actively working with the enemy, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Um, now, earlier, we read that in John 13, during the last meal that they were having, Jesus was deeply troubled, and he exclaimed to his disciples, I tell you the truth, one of you guys are going to betray me. 
So Jesus knew all along that this was going to happen. And can you imagine Judas sitting there as he knows, probably with the 30 pieces of silver in pocket already, Jesus comes out and says, one of you guys are going to betray me. I'm sure he probably shot a glance at Judas too. And, you know, I'm sure at this point we probably imagine that all 11 heads of the disciples just turn over at Judas and look at him and we're like, oh, Judas, how could you? Betrayest thou me, Judas? You know, you just imagine everyone's just like, oh, man, I can't believe he's going to do this. But we're actually told the disciples looked at each other wondering whom he could be talking about. So they were confused. In another account, we're actually told that they were looking, uh, looking to themselves and saying, surely not I, Lord. So that's a little bit odd because I think today when we think of Judas, we always think of him as an evil, evil um, you know, betrayer. We sort of demonize him. And yet, to the disciples' eye, they, you know, this guy looked pretty good. Uh, the fact that they had no idea who Jesus was talking about indicates that Judas was probably a good person. That he was a religious person. He lived a good life. From the exterior, it looked like this guy was morally upright. But it's very clear that this guy was corrupt. That he was only in it for himself. And later, John actually gives us some commentary, probably after more of the story sort of unfolds about Judas and what he had done as he was following Jesus. In one episode there in John chapter 12, Mary, one of Jesus' close friends, breaks this alabaster vial and anoints Jesus right before he's about to be crucified. And one of the guys who protests Mary doing this is Judas. He said, I can't believe that you would throw away nearly a year's wage because that was how much that, that vial of perfume cost in one act like this. Certainly we could have sold this and given it to the poor. And John actually comments that he was, he was not concerned about the poor whatsoever, but that he was actually pilfering from the purse of the disciples. So this guy was a trusted member of the twelve, so much so that they gave him the, the money that they were using to travel from place to place. And it must have come out later on that he was actually taking some money out of, uh, from the, from the uh, funds that they had. And so Judas represents the kind of person who has what you might call superficial faith. That he was following Christ for the benefits that he saw, but really he had no loyalty to Christ whatsoever. He had never truly placed his faith in Christ. And you see this a lot in the American church today where there are many people who are good people, they're morally upstanding, and yet even though they claim to be Christians, followers of Christ, they, they don't have a relationship with God. And Whenever suffering enter the, enters their life or things get hard for following Christ, they're out of there. And so Judas represents that kind of person, the superficial hearer and follower of Christ. Well, anyway, the, disciples, uh, the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. 
Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who is he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked him, who is it, Lord? And Jesus responded, it's the one to whom I give the bread that I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Sure, he gave it to other people too because it wasn't that obvious after this event that it was Judas who was going to betray. That when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him and Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. But none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. I mean, you can imagine Judas was just sweating bullets. Jesus has to know. I mean, he, he dipped bread in the bowl and he handed it to me. He says, do what you do quickly. Well, since Judas was the treasurer, some thought that Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once going out into the night. So what uh, John's referring to here is customary during the Passover for somebody to take some money, some alms, and give it to the poor. So they probably thought that that's what Judas was doing. That Judas was taking some of the money, since he was the treasurer, to go and, um, you know, give alms to the poor. Now, sometime later, we read that Judas, uh, as Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with his disciples, that a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the twelve disciples, and Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. That was customary for a disciple to greet the rabbi with a kiss on the cheek. It was a, a sign of respect and love. And so when he walked over and kissed Jesus, Jesus said to him, Judas, you would betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He turned what would be an act of love and appreciation and respect into a sign of betrayal. Now, that's pretty bad. I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, was surprised that Judas did this. You know, if you, if you uh, manage to surprise the Son of God, you've done something pretty bad. And, um, you know, uh, Jesus was just appalled that he would use this as a sign. Well, when the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And... Uh, <laughs> This is kind of ridiculous because there's actually a cohort of Romans who are, who are following Judas. And, you know, here are these, these village folk who have never been trained in fighting. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing his right ear off. And Jesus stops him. He says, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. In another account, we tell, we're told that um, it was actually Peter who did this. Peter, in a moment of bravery, <laughs> decides that he's going to, you know, take a sword and try to fight back these, you know, hundreds of Romans. And he takes this, uh, he makes a lame attempt at slashing at the high priest's servant's ear. Uh, and, you know, the sword that they were using, if you look at the Greek here, it indicates that it wasn't like, you know, one of those long uh, broad swords that you see in Braveheart, you know, that's like the size of a grown man. But this thing was actually like a little dagger. So he pulls out a little pocket knife and, you know, <laughs> sticks the high priest's servant. Jesus is like, dude, chill. <laughs> now, earlier during dinner, 
It actually makes sense that Peter would respond this way because as they were having their last meal together, uh, Jesus turns to the disciples and, and Peter and says, Simon, Simon, which is Peter, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me, straighten your, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you, even to die with you. You ever read through the New Testament? This, uh, very, this is classic Peter right here. You know, he's, he's all piss and vinegar. And um, he's always the first guy to talk. He's the first guy to just, you know, uh, take steps of faith. But he's also one of the biggest failures in the New Testament that we read about. Because he's always shooting off his mouth. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me. You will deny that you know me three times. And so uh, it makes sense that Peter would respond this way because he had already made an oath. Lord, I'm, I'm willing to even die with you. Well, D.A. Carson points to how foolish this was. He's a scholar of the New Testament. He says, The blow was as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. I think that's a real succinct way of putting it. Peter didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, that's what you really like about Peter, though, is that he's got heart. Sometimes his activity is a little bit misguided, but he's a well-meaning guy, right? Well, um, going back to Gethsemane, after Jesus stops the commotion where the disciples are trying to attack Malchus, the, the high priest's servant, Jesus spoke to the leading priests and the captains of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. Am I some da dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come to me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every single day. But this is your moment and the time when the power of darkness reigns. He said, I, I've been in the courts this entire time. I've been preaching. I've been in the temple. You had your opportunity, and so now you're going to come to me with armed guards in the middle of the night to seize me? So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. He wanted to see what was unfolding. Then the guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. He, he gained access because apparently one of Jesus' disciples had an in with the high priest, so he gained access to the courtyard of the high priest, and so Peter snuck in there. And we're told a servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began uh, staring at him. Finally, she said, Surely this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know that man. And so you have the first denial. Uh, just as Jesus had predicted. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, You must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, retorted uh, Peter. And then, about an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. Question, how did they know that he was a Galilean, which was from a different part of Israel? Probably because he had a Galilean drawl, if you know what I mean. 
he had an accent that was uh, very clear to the people in Jerusalem that he was not from their parts. And so he was readily identifiable. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. So just as Jesus had predicted in Mark's account, who actually Mark happens to be Jesus or uh, Peter's cousin, he doesn't spare any details. You know how that is. You know, whenever your relatives get to talking about you, they always lay out all the lurid details about your life. Well, we're told in Mark 14, verse 70 through 72, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you're a Galilean. And he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And so apparently he was, he was laying down curses. He was, he was saying, you know, to put it in our modern English, he said, may God damn me if I know this man. I'm telling you, I don't know at all. Well, in verse 61, we're told at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Apparently, as Peter had his back to the people at the fire, the soldiers brought Jesus out. And suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even knew me. Imagine how how just devastating this must have been for Peter. You know, he's sitting there and as he's yelling, he turns around and his eyes lock with Jesus' eyes. And Jesus has been standing there the whole time as he's swearing, I don't know this man. That must have been real heavy. In light of all the boasting, in light of how confident he was that he would go even to death with Jesus, and yet, his cowardice shows, shows up in all of its color. Now, I'm a little sympathetic to Peter. You know, there are times where people have asked me questions or I had an opportunity to share my faith or I've heard people talk about Christianity and I didn't say anything. And so, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to an extent with what Peter is going through here. Well, in verse 62, we're told that Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Now, you know, even though Peter messed up, we know that he felt bad about what he did. You know, Peter goes on, as we're going to read in the book of Acts, to become the, one of the great Christian leaders of the early church. And it was probably because he felt bad for what he did. I mean, he ran out of the courtyard weeping over what he had done. Felt so sorry for it. But when you look at Judas, he also felt bad too. And really, if you compare Peter and Judas, it becomes clear that Judas felt as bad, maybe worse than Peter. In Matthew 27, verse 3 through 5, we're told that when Judas, had, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he, he was filled with remorse. And so he took the 30 pieces of silver that was given to him and threw it back into the temple, giving it to the leading priests and the elders. So I guess from Ju- Judas's standpoint, he was just trying to cash in, but he never thought 
that it would end like that, where Jesus would be condemned to die. And so as soon as he found out about that, he felt so bad that he returned the money. He said, I've sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. And they said, what do we care? That's your problem. And so he admitted that he had done something wrong. He says, I've sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. He wasn't like sugarcoating it or blame shifting. He didn't say, you know, I've been following this guy for three and a half years. What was I supposed to do? No, he readily admitted, I screwed up here. I betrayed this guy. Then Judas threw the coins into the temple and went out and hung himself. Pretty heavy. I mean, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, and I've felt incredibly grieved at points. But I've never felt grieved to the extent where I thought, man, I should just take my life. And yet he went through with it. Talk about feeling sorry for what he's done. And so certainly Judas felt bad for what he did to Jesus, shows up in the account. And yet, despite feeling bad, Judas actually experienced God's condemnation. It's one of the really strange things. You know, when you read the Bible, most of the time the Bible never tells us about the eternal state of people. And yet, there are certain people who we are certain where they went to. Judas, we know, went to hell, according to the Bible. We're told in John 17, verse 12, that Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, says, During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that they wouldn't be lost, except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Apparently, this event, as we've been studying over the last, I don't know, two or three weeks, Actually, the Old Testament predicted that this would happen in Zechariah chapter 11, that one would betray the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. And so we know that Judas fulfilled this prophecy through his own choice and that actually landed him in the other place, condemned by God. Now, okay, it may be helpful for us to compare the lives of these two guys, the outcome, really. You know, when you look at Judas, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. That was pretty bad. I mean, that he took a sign that was used for reverence and used it as a sign of betrayal. Peter, on the other hand, denied Jesus with cursing. And presumably there were, you know, at least, um, you know, 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour between each of these denials. I mean, I can understand if like you were afraid and maybe the first time you denied Jesus, but certainly Peter knew what he was doing. It's not like he just kind of lost it in one moment and decided to deny that he knew Jesus. You know, with Judas, it was premeditated, which is pretty bad. You know, if you um, look at a crime and it's premeditated, a lot of times that carries a greater sentence because it shows intent, shows motive. Whereas with Peter, he denied Jesus three times. And so that was pretty bad. Of course, you know, with Peter, he felt sorry for what he did, but so did Judas. He felt bad for what he did to an extent where he was willing to kill himself over it. And yet, when we look at Peter, he ended up becoming the leader of the early church, whereas with Judas, 
he ended up experiencing God's condemnation. And so when you look at really the lives of these two guys, what they did, I'm not so much struck by the difference between what they did. More so, I'm struck by the similarities between what they did. And yet the outcomes seem totally different. And so it really can't be brought down to how they felt, which one felt worse. Because clearly Judas and Peter both felt bad. There was something about the way they responded to their failure that I think accounts for the difference in outcome between them. So how do we explain the difference between these two guys and their outcomes? I think uh, Matthew 27 verse 3, which we read, sheds a little bit of light on this. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Now in Greek, this word remorse is the Greek word metamelomai. Okay? I'm not throwing out Greek words here to impress you. There's actually substance to this. If you break down this word, the prefix meta means change or transform, like a metamorphosis. And then the root uh, part of the word uh, mellow means mood or feeling. And so what Judas experienced was a change of feeling. He felt grieved. He felt sorrow. But that was it. Paul talks about the difference between just having a feeling of regret or sorrow and what true repentance looks like. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, he says, For sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So, apparently, it's, it's the way that we respond to our failure, our attitude toward our failure, that determines whether or not we experience salvation or whether we experience death, according to Paul. Now that word regret, that's the word metamelomai. Now that word repentance is the word metanoia. Again, meta meaning change or transform, but the root word is different, noose, which means mind or orientation. And so the difference would be with Judas, he had a change of feeling. He felt bad. Whereas, apparently, what happened with Peter was that he had a change of mind or orientation. That it was a, a much more than just a feeling state, that he actually made a decision to turn things around. Um, this is actually from uh, D.A. Carson in his commentary on um, the book of Matthew, he says, Metamelami, he changed his mind in verse 29, referring to the two sons, the one who says, I'm going to go out and mow the lawn, and then he never does it. And then the other one who says, no, I'm not going to go do it, and he does it anyway. And he says that um, in, in response to this, Metamelami, uh, he changed his mind, may or may not follow be followed by change of purpose in the New Testament, unlike metanoe, uh, metanoei. So that refers to 
uh, a change or uh, a, a shift in orientation. And so let's look at the difference between regret and repentance, metamelamai and metanoia, to, see, to maybe contrast and help us see the difference between these. With regret, contains feelings of sorrow or guilt, as we saw with Judas. But with repentance, it also contains feelings of sorrow and guilt. I mean, you know, Peter, he felt bad about what he did. He was grieved. He ran out of the, uh, of the court sobbing over what he did. So really, there's no help there. They, they look the same. Uh, with repentance, there's an agreement with God. You know, the Bible teaches that it reveals what God says. So, you know, when we fall into some sort of moral wrongdoing or some, some moral failure, and we read what the Bible says, uh, true repentance means that we actually agree with what God says in his, in his written revelation. But regret may also agree with God. That's possible too. Think about when Judas went to the leading priests and uh, elders of Israel. What did he say? He says, I've sinned. I betrayed an innocent man. He knew what he, that what he did was wrong. Readily agreed with that. That was, that was a true statement. You know, most of the time, though, we see that people don't agree with what God says. That usually when they have fallen into some sort of uh, moral failure, the Bible is under increased scrutiny, and eventually you'll see people attacking the Bible questioning whether or not it's historically reliable, whether or not uh, it's really that easy to understand. And a lot of times what's happening is that the person is trying to justify their, their actions by distorting what God has to say. You know, with regret, it leads us further away from God as it did with Judas. It didn't draw him closer to God. He never had another encounter with Jesus. Whereas with repentance, it leads us toward God. Yeah, true repentance actually calls on us to turn to God. And usually as we repent, we feel a, a, a deeper sense of closeness and intimacy with God. You know, with repentance, it leaves no regret. As we... Uh, saw there in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, that one of the sure signs that maybe you're not repentant over something you've done is that even though you've confessed, even though uh, you've agreed with God, that at some point you drop it. And you say, you know what? I'm not going to think about this anymore because I understand that what Jesus did applied to that, that failure. And so... A truly repentant person actually will apply God's grace, his mercy to the thing that they've done wrong. And so that releases them of this lingering sense of guilt that they feel. Uh, whereas with regret, there's this ongoing guilt. You know, I was talking to a buddy of mine a number of years ago, and he was just telling me, you know, I don't really know what's wrong with my relationship with God. I just feel like 
as I'm trying to move forward, it's almost like my wheels are just stuck in the mud. And I'm just not going anywhere. I've been depressed. I feel like I'm, I'm lacking insight in God's word, which I used to enjoy as I would read it. And as we talked for several hours, it became clear that the reason he felt that way was because of an event that happened years earlier. He admitted that a, a number of years earlier, he was actually handling the money for his house and that he was taking some of that money and using it for his own expenses. Of course, he would pay it back. But eventually, he came out and said, you know what, I screwed up. And people, you know, showed him tons of grace. They forgave him. And so this event was like years in the rearview mirror, and yet he said to me, there's not a day that goes by where I think about how badly I screwed up. And I'm like, dude, what does 2 Corinthians 7, 10 verse, uh, verse 10 say? It says that, it, that true repentance leaves no regret. And so at uh, that moment, you know, he turned to God and we prayed and he said that he experienced release. You know, with regret, there's a desire to pay back or, or right the wrong. You know, think about Judas. He returned those 30 pieces of silver. You know, in our culture today, that's actually something that's prized. You know, somebody who did something really bad in their lives and so they decided, you know what, I, I did this one thing and now I'm changing my life and I'm going to live for the good from now on. So they do all of these altruistic things and it, they're a nice person. And I'm not saying that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but that doesn't represent true repentance. Because first of all, trying to right those wrongs isn't going to release you from the, the sense of guilt that you feel. You're still enslaved to that. And so that's not true freedom. Secondly, according to the Bible, no matter how many good works you do or good things you try to perform, none of those things will ever qualify you for entrance into God's kingdom. No amount of good works will turn you from a guilty person into an innocent person. The Bible declares that the only way for us to be regarded as innocent is to turn to Christ and receive the forgiveness that he freely offers through the cross. Whereas with repentance, there is a helpless throwing upon, of ourselves upon God's mercy. I can't make up for what I've done. I've screwed up. I'm guilty. But I know that what Jesus did covers my wrongdoing. And so there's a note of victory there that you don't see with regret. With regret, you know, we're mostly upset about the consequences. We feel bad that we made people angry, that we hurt people. We're angry that uh, we screwed up and disappointed people around us. And so we're mainly focused on the horizontal. But if you turn to the Old Testament and read David's psalm in Psalm 51, verse 4, this was written right after he uh, committed adultery and tried to cover it up by killing the woman's husband. So pretty serious. He writes this psalm to God and he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. 
That's a striking statement considering what he had done. He knew that there were incredible consequences for that woman's family. So he was fully aware of that, and yet he saw that there was a vertical dimension to his sin. Of course, as Christians, we don't have to face God's judgment after we've received Christ. But when we fall into serious moral failure and we're more concerned about keeping up our image with the people around us instead of engaging with how this is impacting our relationship with God, it can actually cause us to feel alienation from God. You know, I've had more experiences that I can remember where I've fallen into to some sort of moral failure and, you know, I get around a bunch of Christians and I'm just like, oh, man, just, everyone's judging me. Why is she looking at me like that? She knows, you know? And, uh, man, everyone's being all judgy around here. And, uh, you know, people are calling me up and I'm trying to, like, dodge them and stuff. And finally, you know, somebody pins me down. It's like, what is going on with you? And finally, I just admit, you know, okay, I screwed up. I did this thing. And I'm just waiting for, you know, for, for the blow, the hammer to, 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 to hit me, you know, with judgment. And um, most of the time, you know, when I've talked to people, they have just shown me incredible forgiveness and grace. And um, I wonder if that's the way it is with us and God, you know, where a lot of times when we fall into some sort of moral failure, our our first inclination is to run away from God. It's kind of hard, you know, when you go to the, to the bar and you get, you know, wasted maybe. And then, uh, you know, the next morning be like, oh, man, you know, I really want to read the Bible now. And, you know, I'm feeling real energized. Time to spend some time with God. That's like the last thing you want to do, Right? Because you feel so guilty, you're just like, dude, there's no way God's going to accept me. And yet from his standpoint, he's, he's thinking to himself, I just wish he or she would come to me and talk to me. So I can show, show them my grace, my forgiveness. Uh, with repentance, you know, it ex uh, the person accepts responsibility and consequences without bitterness or anger. That's another good sign of repentance. You know, some of us are in a position of leadership or responsibility and depending on the level of moral failure, it can actually disqualify us in some form of service. And that's painful. You know, I've been in cases where I've lost responsibilities or opportunities to serve God because of things that I've done wrong and uh, I felt bad about it. And yet, a repentant person will accept that and not be bitter and say, you know, oh man, they're just mistreating me. They're being unfair. That's a, that's a sure sign that that person is probably not repentant. You know, with regret, there's a lot of minimizing and blame shifting going on. A lot of excuses. You know, you'll hear stuff like, I couldn't help it. You know? Uh, what was I supposed to do? Everybody was, you know, uh, passing the pipe around. It got to me. Oh, what am I supposed to do? Look at it? Pass it along? It's other people's fault. You know, if I wasn't surrounded by these people, I wouldn't act this way. I wouldn't be losing my temper constantly, freaking out at people, cussing them out, threatening them. It's them. 
you know, if I wasn't in this situation, I would have never done it. So the circumstances surrounding whatever we did was, was the cause of our actions. Or, you know, if my family wasn't so messed up, I wouldn't act this way or do these things. Now, when you think about all these excuses and try to harmonize that with what the Bible says about God, the Bible teaches that God has sovereignly allowed you to grow up and live in the circumstances that you're in. And so by making these excuses, essentially, what are we doing? We're saying that the person who put us in these circumstances or who put us in these situations should be the one to to get the blame. That God's really the one to blame for this, not me. You know, with regret, continues to conceal the truth or tells half-truths. Um, you know, they, they will hold the truth in. And, uh, or, you know, if, if something comes out, um, a lot of times they'll minimize it or just tell part of the story. Uh, whereas with repentance, there is this openness, a relief, and a joy. You know, the reason why you feel relief when you finally repent and confess what you've done is because when you are trying to conceal stuff, you're, you're weaving a tapestry of lies around you. So, so it's hard to remember, did I tell this person this thing or did I tell them the other thing? And so it becomes, it gets real complicated where we got, we're juggling, you know, 15 different lies that we're telling people and we can't remember who we are lying to about what. And so when we finally come out with it all, there's a sense of relief. I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have to put on this facade. I don't have to sweat under the pressure of feeling like I'm a hypocrite. And so there's this sense of relief and joy. Think about what David says in Psalm 51, verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. There's something about allowing God's grace to heal us and minister to us that brings about a sense of joy. That seems weird. Coming out with your problems, confessing your sins brings about joy. You know, I was thinking about a guy a number of years ago who uh, had been lying about something for months, you know, eight or nine months, and I could tell that something was wrong with him, and finally he came out and said, you know, I've been, I've been messing around, sleeping with my girlfriend and stuff. And uh, I just encouraged him. I said, I think you should go and tell some of your trusted friends um, about what happened. And so he did reluctantly. And um, after he did that, uh, something just changed right away. Something snapped. And... Um, he was, he was excited to tell people, you know, even, even at home church, he would sit down with people and be like, you know, I really screwed up. Not, not getting into all the gory details, but was saying, you know, I really screwed up, but um, I just opened up to my roommates, my friends, and I just feel this sense of release and I'm experiencing God's forgiveness in a new way that I've never experienced before. And so there's a joy that comes out of repentance. You know, with regret, there's feelings of self-pity and discouragement as we replay our failure over and over again. We feel like, you know, I'm never going to change. I should just quit. And yet, when we say things like that, it's, again, an indictment upon God. If we say, I'm never going to change, what does that suggest? 
that God who promises he can transform us and change us is incapable of doing that. And so in essence, we are calling into question who God is by refusing to repent. Whereas with repentance, you know, there's, it's forward-looking. It views failure as a catalyst for spiritual growth. And it eventually issues an outward change and long-term victory. We shouldn't miss this part because I've sat through many conversations where people felt bad about doing things and said, you know, I agree with what God says and I want to change, but it issued in nothing, no real change. Again, I was thinking about a case where a number of years ago, I was talking to a woman who really struggled with bitterness and, um, you know, she would, would refuse to forgive people if they, if they did something wrong to her. And it was just eating her life up. It was consuming her. Finally, I sat down with her. I said, you know, this is a real problem because she was a leader too. And I said, uh, if you don't get a hold of this, if you don't change this, it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat you up. It's going to destroy your walk with God. And she was like, yeah, you're right. I understand. I, I'm going to change and stuff. And then a few months later, we start hearing reports again that her roommates are just walking on eggshells around her because she's uh, angry at them. Um, or that she's bitter about something again that we heard about. And so finally I went back to her. I said, you know, so you said you were going to change, and I don't understand because I'm hearing all these reports. And she's like, I believe. And I said, okay, it needs to go beyond just the mental level. It needs to actually issue in your actions. Because when you really have repentance where you have a change of mind, that's actually going to start to influence the way that you act. And so people who have repented, you'll start to see long-term victory. There's going to be a visible change in their lives. Okay. With regret, it ultimately leads to death. For those of us who don't have a relationship with God, you know, there are probably things that you've done that you're ashamed of, that you feel guilty over. Let me tell you something. The Bible says there's nothing you can do to fix that. You're guilty. And if you try to take matters into your own hands, it's going to lead to death, eternal death. But if you decide that you want to repent, to turn to God, receive his forgiveness, it actually leads to salvation. All right. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing that we can conclude would be if you've fallen short of God's, you have fallen short of God's standard in your life. Let's just admit that, okay? Uh, you know, if you sat through this whole thing and it, none of it has resonated with you, sorry for wasting your time. Um, you know, I guess you're not like most of us in here who've got problems. Uh, by the way, you know, if you don't struggle with anything or have any problems, I'd like you to come up and sign my Bible. Uh, after the teaching, right next to where it says hypocrite. <laughs> the Bible teaches that, you know, his ultimate standard is perfection. And uh, that we all fall short. We're all messed up. I'd be the first to admit that. And, um, you know, feeling sorry for what you've done, that's a starting point. But that's not good enough according to the Bible. We really have two options. You know, how are you going to react to your sorrow? Are you going to draw near to God for forgiveness? Or are you going to destroy yourself with guilt and self-pity? 
You know, in the Bible, um, there's this story about what's, what some have called the prodigal son. You know, this guy decides that he's going to tell his dad, I want all of my inheritance. And he takes his money and just, you know, spends it on wild living. He's partying. He's, have, you know, sleeping with prostitutes. And eventually the money runs out and, event, and he's uh, in a position where he's having to actually work as an indentured servant. And at one point he's so hungry that he's tempted to actually take some of the pig swill that he's feeding the pigs with. As a Jewish boy, that would be utterly disgusting. And he's tempted to actually slurp some of it up. And, um, but we're told that at that moment, as he is, you know, putting the, the, the swill up to his mouth, that he comes to a place of enlightenment where he realizes, what am I doing? You know, even, this, even my father's servants get treated better than I'm being treated right now. And so he goes back to his father and um, he rehearses, you know, this whole line, you know, father, I've, I've, I've uh, you know, sinned against God and I've sinned against you and you can take me back as one of your servants. And uh, as he is walking toward his father's estate, you know, his father just runs up to him, hugs him, doesn't even allow him to get the words out. And he says, get, get a robe and, and a ring for my son has come home. He was dead and now he's alive. And really, that's a beautiful picture of what God wants from you. That we don't have to live our lives in futility anymore. We don't have to keep doing the things that are destroying our lives. The ultimate solution is to receive the forgiveness that God wants to offer us. And he's, he's ready. He's waiting for that. Yes, Lord, uh, you know, maybe there are some of us here tonight who feel trapped in uh, maybe a pattern of sin that we've been concealing. And uh, maybe we have a lot of fear about opening up about it. Uh, I pray that you would give those individuals courage to just be open uh, with their trusted friends, Christian believers, about what's going on and experience uh, the freedom that comes from repentance. And um, we thank you uh, most of all that you show us your grace. We know that when we study something like this, it's not a matter of if we mess up, but when we mess up. And uh, we pray that you would call to mind uh, teachings like this or just passages about repentance as uh, we uh, have to turn to you and um, experience uh, that metanoia that you uh, describe where we are able to change our orientation. And finally, Lord, I pray for those of us who don't know you personally, who uh, feel guilty for things that they've done wrong. We know that you offer uh, them something that will unburden them completely. And uh, we pray that they would just turn to Christ and receive his forgiveness. Thank you for anybody who did that in his name. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.